Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob. And of course, this week on Cinemodities, we are finishing up our fan member slash fans giving series. Before we jump into a movie today, and I throw it over to Zach to explain who we got it from, I want to say that I, I think for the first time on all the Cinemodities, I am genuinely not okay with a movie. So <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to give some background to this. Um, I think I've said it briefly on here. Uh, if you've ever lived with me, you know this about me. Zach might know it about me. I have an irrational fear of dolls like like not stuffed animals not action figures like i'm talking those old school porcelain dolls those kind of figurine type you know little bigger than like a like a like a kid's toy maybe a little smaller than actual human my whole damn life these things have freaked me the hell out in an irrational and unnatural way um like i wouldn't leave rooms in my grandparents house because i knew there was a doll in there Oh, don't even get me started on Chucky. We will never, ever review Chucky. That movie scares the hell out of me. Um, that might be where Zach knows about this from, because my dad is a huge Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, and their coach for a oh. long time was John Gruden. Oh. And for some reason, my dad loved the fact that people thought John Gruden looked like Chucky, and so there's actually many Chucky dolls in my parents' house, and it fucking ruined my <laughs> ruined my childhood there you go i i, I never not, knew that folks i do not do well with dolls i do not well do well with and i think more explicitly as i've gotten older and figured it out i don't do well with humanoid looking things because i think they're going to come to life and that's what scares me the two goddamn main characters of the dark crystal the gelflings as i believe they're called oh my god i did not handle this well this was freaking me out. Like, there was certain things. I was like, I just cannot look at this. Allah, as I texted Zach, how he's described his fear of the elephant man. Like, there's just something about it. Like, it's not the movie that I'm afraid of. It's just looking at these creatures. So I had an immensely difficult time watching this movie just because I had to deal with that. One of my notes is literally, oh, fuck, there's another ugly thing when another Gelfling shows up. And that, I almost, I almost like, literally did not want to watch the rest of it. But I powered through. I'm still not okay with it. I never want to look at these damn things again. No one should ever look at them. But I, I was frightened. I was frightened during this movie, Zach. Uh, it was, it was a, a rough time. So with that being said, oh. we don't have to harp on my fear of the Gelflings too much. You know, I don't even want to say their name. Um, I was really hoping that one would stay dead in the end. That would have been great. Uh, but no, now I'll throw it over to Zach for this introduction into the Fansgiving episode. Where did we get the Dark Crystal? Well, Rob, we got the Dark Crystal suggestion from Mackenzie C. She uh, contacted me through my Knights of Vader podcast Instagram. And after much uh, back and forth, she gave us a list of movies to talk about. But she eventually decided on the Dark Crystal. And that's why we're here, folks. I but, totally would have taken the Fievel movies over this. Uh, that's, <laughs> I don't know. Like, those, those are rough, too. Those, those are, yeah, say, but those wouldn't make me, like, 
anxious and sweaty while I'm watching a movie. <laughs> True. I guess we should say we had a bunch of movies Mackenzie gave us on her short list. We had an American Tale, its sequel, The Village, Princess Mononoke. Uh, there was a bunch of things there. And she eventually decided on The Dark Crystal. And I told her, and I, I shared with her Rob's response to her selection. And she said, I'm glad. Let me get the exact response. Um, I am glad that like both of you will be upset. This is kind of like the opposite of what we do to the audience. This is the audience now getting its revenge on us. So our misery will be Im- immeasurable. Our suffering yes. will be immeasurable. Our hey, suffering will be legendary. Good job, Mackenzie. I'm, I'm imagining you did not understand my fear of dolls or humanoid things like this. Uh, but you you picked it well, you know. My suffering was very immeasurable. <laughs> <laughs> I did warn her. I'm like, I've watched this because, okay, I guess my context time was that I've been aware of this movie for practically ever. I remember back when I lived in Florida with my nephew. He had like in his bedroom, he had a rack of VHS movies, and he was always into this sort of stuff. Like he liked the more fairy tale esque things. Like I guess more. Like, I don't want to say Lord of the Rings, but like he had like the animated Lord of the Rings movie back sure. from like what the 70s. And so he was always into this more mystical side of stuff. Like, and he, he mm-hmm. liked that sort of stuff. I remember seeing the VHS tape in his room and I asked his mother, my sister in law, and I'm like, oh, how's the Dark Crystal? Because like you look at the box art and it's terrifying. Like, it is nightmare fuel. And the fact that this is like, like listed as a children's film is kind of like baffling to a child. And she's like, oh, it's, like, really good. And I'm like, okay, I'm never going to watch it. But, like, my main (laughs) memory of this beyond that was, like, I think I had a couple of Muppet Babies VHSs. And I think on one of them, there was a preview for this being like, oh, if you're interested in Jim Henson, check out The Dark Crystal. And it's, like, one of those, like, what, 60-second, 90-second, like, advertisements. Like, oh, check it out on VHS. And it wasn't until, I want to say, early last year, because I know the film had its, God, I think... 35th anniversary okay that right that 35th anniversary uh last yeah december of 2017 and i've always been interested in this movie like in that sort of sense like before i'd actually watched it and i know it came out like on like 4k blu-ray and i'm like oh like i probably should pick this up because i do like a lot of uh like jim henson like adult stuff like we'll like one day we will talk about disney's return to oz which is sheer nightmare fuel but that's we'll cross that bridge when we get there and so right. i got it Oh yeah, that's that's it. But movies are trip, folks. That's kind of like another one of those ones where I'm not sure if Rob and I are prepared yet to talk about Return to Oz. <laughs> like I've heard stories, but even I'm. That's one of those ones, folks. We we might have to climb that mountain, but it might be a long time from now. Um, but no, so I got the movie because I know they released it on Blu-ray years ago, like more of like a standard packaging. It wasn't like a super duper collector's edition. And I got that from the library and I watched it, and I'm like, oh good lord, like I hate this. This is this is awful. Like I like don't and we'll get more into it later on though. But like I can appreciate the technical aspect of it, just the like the sheer amount of uh, man hours that went into just like designing all this nonsense sure, and operating yeah, it. Like absolutely. I can I can appreciate the craftsmanship and the puppeteering of it all, but like as a finished product, it is horrifying and I cannot not recommend it enough. <laughs> I uh, I have to say I agree with you. Once I was able to power through all the Gelfling stuff. I still hated this movie. <laughs> yeah, this. Oh no, this is. Yeah, this is. I think we both agree. This is bad, like a capital B. Oh yeah, the Gel. I mean, we'll, we'll, like Zach said, we'll get any more into it. But you know, the Gelflings was just my dislike of things looking like that. But everything else from the 
the like Zach said, I, I'm I'm with you on the idea that there was so much manpower, so much effort put into this puppetry and puppeteering. I have nothing against that, but there's like the voice acting in this movie is terrible. The plot is so loose it hurts. Uh, it, it just moves on and on at a pace that you know never really makes any sense. Characters get introduced just so you have something to look at. It seems I I, I can't. I couldn't stand any of it. This kind of was like, I, I've heard this d- before as described as something for kids, but this has got to be for toddlers or something, and you're just going to horrify them at an early age. Well, I don't, that's the thing. I know, like, probably Rob, in the research he did, saw that, like, oh, Jim Henson's, like, thesis for this. I guess we should say Jim Henson, Frank Oz, co-directed this film yes, yes. in 1982. And like Jim Henson's big thing was like, oh, he wanted to go back to like Grimm's fairy tales. The idea that like, let's not like, oh God, sh- uh, sand down the the edges on children's entertainment. What I think is admirable. I think there should be some elements. I think every, well, maybe not nowadays, but back when Rob and I were growing up, there was always entertainment that had that kind of edge to it that spooked us. Uh, but this, like everything is aesthetically ugly. Mm, everything. Yeah. Like I get scaring kids. But, like, there's nothing, like, the craftsmanship is beautiful as an ideal, but in execution, like, everything is ugly looking. Yep, and I would, I, I agree with you, everything is ugly looking. Uh, uh, it ranges from ugly to horrifying. Uh, oh, yeah. But if, if you, I think if you even go a little further, like, we've been saying, yeah, we appreciate the effort that went into this, but I thought this movie was so clearly limited by the puppetry that at times it was embarrassing. Like, I'm thinking of a, like a, what Gelfling dude goes to ugly witch lady who's an astronomer. Guy McPuppet. Guy McPuppet. <laughs> Guy McPuppet. Guy McPuppet goes to astronomer McPuppet. And he's she's like, yeah, I have the shard, but it's just, you know, in this case of shards, and I'm like, wow, that was easy to get the main quest item. But there's a scene where the, um, the, the black lobster monsters show up to, like, get yep. the Gelfling. And the the shot is so stupid. Like three of these giant monsters come in and our two main characters just stand there. And like one of their mouths opens. It's like, this is embarrassing. I get you're limited by by the technology of the time and the technology you've chosen to, to use. But there would be there has to be better ways to shoot that to not make it look so simple and so limited, like I said. And that's what got me on a lot of this movie. Where sure, if you just let your eyes glaze over during some of those ending battle scenes, maybe it passes. But I was trying to look at specific characters and what they're doing, and it's just like they're doing nothing. They're just spinning around in some cases, and it's like I guess that's choreography. I guess uh, that's the thing. That's like I, I know a lot of people worship the ground Jim Henson walked on, and as an artist, he was talented. You can't deny his influence on entertainment and just the culture in the seventies and eighties. You can't deny that. But I do, some people are just blinded by that. They're not willing to objectively look at what he does. Mm-hmm. And, and like Rob said, we do have to concede this was 1982. He was pioneering a lot of this stuff. Because think about it. But I can't think of another puppeteered film that was on this scale before this. Oh, yeah, not at and all. Then, Nothing. And then, I, I even looked a little bit into that. And this really was, you know, groundbreaking for sure. Well, yeah, this is kind of like what Tron was for visual effects in 1982. This is what yeah. it was for puppets. And I respect that. I do. But like you said, like we have our two main characters, Guy McPuppet and Gal McPuppet, and our two main characters have literally no facial expression. They just bl- their facial expression is blinking. 
and opening their mouth in like awe. Yet you have the Skeksis, which I think are the only interesting part of the film because they only had, they're the only ones that are really scene chewers. Mm-hmm. And you, yet they are, those puppets are so intricately detailed and so emotive. And they're horrifying, like giant, like vulture people. Yet our two main protagonists, who are supposed to be the closest thing we have to humans in this, are the most stoic and just one note in an emotional sense. Yeah. And I and I can't figure that out as to why Jim Henson and Frank Oz. And yes, I get it, they would go on in later years, like uh, hone their craft, but. I, you'd think they would have been like, oh, we need to pour more money into our protagonist because a lot of the weight of the films could be on their shoulders. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And I think that's why they specifically, the Gelflings in this movie, are the things that freak me out so much because they emote so little. You know, it's it's like uh, another thing that scares the hell out of me is that Twilight Zone episode with, uh, it's not Chatty Cathy, Talking Tina. And the doll talks, and the doll has very limited facial movements, and just, you know, its eyes blink, and its mouth moves, because that's all a doll would do. And that's what these characters do. And you're making a great point with, well, why why the hell wouldn't they try and make these be a little more expressive? Oh, yeah, because even, like, you look at, like, this was after Yoda. And even though oh, yeah. Yoda is considered one of the, like, uh, hallmarks... In puppeteering, look at the amount of emotion they got out of him in 19... God, when they were making Empire, that yep. was 78, 79. So they certainly, by this time, could do stuff like this. So I don't I don't know, because as I was watching this, and I really, like, folks, uh, we'll get into it later on, why there's a second movie in the title of this episode, but... Oh, we're, we're putting it in the title? I guess oh, I yeah. didn't ask oh, that. It's, okay. it's, it's going okay. in the title. It has to go in the title. Is it going to be it, in the middle of the title of The Dark Crystal? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um... <laughs> Because as I was watching this, and I really like, I, I'll be honest, I kind of like put it on in the background. I, I couldn't sit through and focus on this. I'd lose my mind. But as I was watching it, I kind of came to a realization because I was watching, like, this movie just feels familiar on, like, a thematic level. And just, like, in an abstract sense, it just felt so familiar, and I couldn't put my finger, uh, finger on it for the longest time until I eventually did. And I realized this movie was ripped off by Jimmy C's Avatar. It's like the exact same movie. You I, have two Yeah, I got that same sense. One of my notes is I was going to ask you Zach, which do you like better, the world of this movie or Pandora? <laughs> and that's what it is. You have like this giant like structure that's kind of like the focal point of the entire plot. I think in Avatar it was what the tree, the yep. giant tree. You have your evil villains who are just kind of like scene chewers for no other reason. And you have your two protagonists, which are essentially just giant, like avatars, like, well, in avatar sense, they are literally avatars, Mm -hmm. but it's just like these blank voids for the audience to kind of project themselves onto. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, that's what this is. This is kind of like a primitive form of avatar where no effort was, all the effort was put on the quote unquote effects. Yet none of it was put on the story. Yep, absolutely. Yep, like we were saying before, that story is so loose. Um, honestly, it, it's it's like the plot of Final Fantasy three. I think. Gotta go get the crystal to save the world type of thing. Otherwise, the bad guys are gonna rule forever. Hell, that's the plot of most early Final Fantasies. <laughs> and, that, and, you know, that's not whatever made early Final Fantasies lovable. It was the breakthrough in the RPG style. Nobody ever cared about the stories until it got to the PlayStation era and stuff like that. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, it's something we've seen, just like Avatar is a great one. So much work goes into the atmosphere and the world that we're supposed to be seeing that everything else gets shortchanged. Yeah. The stuff that shouldn't get shortchanged gets shortchanged. Yeah, and, you th- and again, as I was reading into this, it seemed like Henson spent more time on the technical aspects, mm-hmm. and Frank Oz was more the story person. And I don't know, maybe maybe if Henson tried to wear all the hats, he, there would have been a little bit more, uh, oh God, uniformity in the sense of like there wouldn't have been so much additional emphasis put on the effects over the story. Yeah, because like I think Rob, I've, I've never seen Labyrinth, but Rob was actually when I was telling him about this, he was excited initially because he thought it was Labyrinth until yeah. I told him, no, 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 Rob, that comes years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we didn't say that earlier that when we had all this, uh, all these suggestions from Mackenzie. I was like, I'd be fine for any of these. And I was, for some reason, thinking the Dark Crystal was Labyrinth. And I was like, I was like, Village, I can always complain about M. Night Shyamalan. Princess Mononoke, I love that movie. And then this movie, which I thought was Labyrinth, I'm like, that has David Bowie. I could talk about David Bowie for hours. And so I was like, yeah, it's a win-win. And then I look for this movie. And I, what was, I texted you something like, wait, I thought this was Labyrinth. What's this? What's this Jim Henson nonsense? <laughs> well, Jim Henson was involved with Labyrinth. He was, yeah. So I, I I looked that up afterwards, where this movie and Labyrinth had a lot of the same staff and crew. So I'm not completely fucked up with my thinking, Zach. There was there was a connection there. <laughs> no, no, you're you're not wrong. No, they're they're very similar in the sense of like what they're trying to get at. And I guess this was the stepping stone to Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing about this movie, though, is that like there's there's clearly a, a fan base for it because Netflix just released a prequel series. Yep, and I'm but, so glad I know that it's this, and I will stay away from it. <laughs> but that's like that's the weird thing, though, is that like I don't like the Dark Crystal is one of those things that like it doesn't show up unless you have nostalgia for it. Exactly. Yeah, it, and I think it, what I read the the net if you might have said this, my apologies, but the Netflix series is a prequel. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's just that's just what people want these days is you know let's go back to the same nonsense let's do I'm sure it's going to be about every like all the uh, Gelflings getting uh, genocide committed on them and the two of them surviving I I don't really know but it's you're exactly right that's what a nostalgia driven thing is oh this is gaining cult status let's just you know rehash it call it a prequel because that's interesting. And it'll dump it on Netflix, and people will watch it. They might not like it. They might consume it and forget about it, but but they'll watch it. Yep, and that's kind of what it is. Like as I was trying to get a little bit more back, like backstory on the Dark Crystal, there was like an insane amount of like featurettes on YouTube about the new series. And it's like, like, and again, it's like, oh, like the all these videos about like the puppet, like the engineering feat of like creating all these puppets, like choreographing all these like set pieces. And of course, they're they're using CGI to hide much of the wires. That's one thing we do gotta give Henson credit for is that he does hide a lot of just like the wires and uh, marionettes, so to speak. Whereas today, they don't have to worry about it. They just sit there. You digitally erase all that stuff. So you do lose some of the artistry and the craft. But again, a lot of that is for naught at the end of the day because, like, look what Netflix is doing. It's like you pump millions of dollars into a project that, like, it it has a finite audience. Exactly, yep. Like, no one's gonna, like, I don't know, maybe there will be people out there that'll go watch this prequel series, then be like, oh, I, I would imagine the prequel series is probably, oh god, the pacing is probably a hundred times faster than this is. I would, I would hope they learn from some of their mistakes. Yeah, but, like, at the same time, though, it's like, well, how do you, like, isn't that jarring to the audience, like, changing the pacing that drastically? Because this is so methodically paced, 
And then you go to probably Netflix and it's like probably JJ Abrams, like, okay, bing, bang, boom, brisk. We got to get in and out, in and mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Establish the character's plot, the point of the episode. Okay, few credits, bing, bang, boom. Okay, I'm, moving on. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. That's actually an interesting point. One of the only things I, in the little bit I looked into the prequel series, uh, one of the only things that stood out to me was the writing team, because one of the writers is Javier Grillo Marchwatch, which of course everybody in the world knows as being one of the longest running writers for Law and Order's VU in the earlier seasons. And so you're, but you're making a good, I wrote that down just because of this VU connection, but you're absolutely right. What is, what is one of their writers good at? Just writing procedurals. He did that for, I think, seasons one through 11 or 12 on Law and Order's VU. And that's what he's good at. Just boom, boom, boom. Plot point, plot point. By this minute, we got to make sure they get to the bad guy. By this minute, we got to make sure they get to the courtroom. By this minute, we got to hit our twist. And that's, I think that's what people want. It's an interesting idea of how will that compare to the fans of the original movie, such a different pacing and structure. But I think that's just what's almost demanded now by, by Netflix and, and I would say mass audiences to some extent. Yep. Well, it's paint by numbers uh, storytelling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what it is. And again, that's just the way we go. You're, you're not going to change that as much as Rob and I can uh, bitch and moan. And I guess I didn't, bring <laughs> it up, I didn't bring it up in the last couple of weeks, though, but I guess we should give an update. On uh, Doctor Sleep, it's like folks, like well, by now you should know, but Doctor Sleep bombed. Like we, like like Stephen King has egg on his face. Like he got it shoved right up his ass. Yeah, oh yeah, and it's delightful. And then plus, you look at Terminator Dark Fate bombing, the Charlie's Angels reboot bombed like horribly, like worse than Terminator and Doctor Sleep, and like it's delightful. Like Hollywood's finally being punished for mm-hmm. like all the crap they're peddling. Like it's, I, I love it. It's like good. Like let's continue to punish them. Now we need a, yeah. we need like we need a Marvel film to bomb. So eventually, like everybody freaks out. And we go back to like, oh, we actually have to tell original stories. We just can't coast on just branding mm-hmm. to get people mm-hmm. into the theaters. Like we need that. Like like come on, we, we need one of these Marvel films. All you gotta do is like, what's what's the saying? Like if a god, is, like if you can make a god bleed, if that's all you need, you need one oh, only yeah. one only one of these Marvel films needs to bomb, and the whole thing will start to collapse. Yep. Yeah. Come on, folks. <laughs> I'm interested. I'm glad you brought up Dr. Sleep because uh, I was thinking when I was doing my research for this, I found something out where I was like, oh, God, who's going to bring up Dr. Sleep in The Shining first, me or Zach? <laughs> it was clearly Zach. But uh, we do have another Shining connection I was very intrigued in. Um, I don't know if we want to get to some of that part of the movie, though, but I, I think to frame it before we do get to it, as I watch this to kind of, you know, save myself from really just freaking out having to look at these gelflings i did a lot of my research while the movie was going on kind of in the same sense that you know zach said he had it on in the background and i i disliked this movie as i was watching it and when i finished watching and i disliked it for what it was and every bit of research i did into this made me dislike it more <laughs> and more and more and so i i guess when we get to certain points here and there um, specifically with the voice acting. I think this is some of the worst voice acting I've ever, ever heard. Um, not surprisingly, the main female lead, Gelfling, is named Kira. Coincidence to Solo and Amelia Clark? I think not. Uh, and so I don't know if we want to go there next, but I just wanted to let you know that, Zach, that everything I researched into this, I hated it more and more and more. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I know. I think about Kira. That was, uh, Kira's name's been around forever because that was Ray's code name on on set, oh. like in 2014. Sure, it was. That was a weird moment in the Star Wars fandom because I know some people were like, "Oh, so we're just going to recycle and it's spelled differently." In the uh, the code name for Ray was spelled K I R A, if I remember correctly. Very yeah, and that's the same and that's in uh, Dark Crystal. It's K I R A. Yeah. yeah, whereas in Solo, it's uh, Q I apostrophe R A. Oh, okay. So I don't I know. It, it it could be. I don't know. I know even in the uh, oh god, I think it's in even Ready Player One, whatever his name is, uh, uh, Mark Rylance's character who creates the Oasis. Like his his girlfriend's like av- oh um gamer tag is Kira something. Oh sure, because like, sure. her favorite film is The Dark Crystal. Uh, I, I I guess again that's I, again I. The Dark Crystal, it, it's weird to crap on a movie because it is one of those ones where, like, when Rob and I talk about something that's, like, nostalgic, we like we always wonder, like, oh, if we were experiencing this for the first time, would we appreciate it as much? Mm-hmm. And and not to bring this back to The Shining, but it is something very similar to that. Like, Rob and I have been kind of, like, The Shining's ingrained in the pop culture fabric for us, but much like the people that are defending Dr. Sleep, and oh boy, folks— there's a lot of people defending Dr. Sleep out there, even though there's not many of them. And their main thing is that, like, do- uh, The Shining is boring. Yep. So it's yep. like, it's just the idea, like, again, and considering these films did come out within a couple of years of each other, uh, where I think The Shining has a lot more intrinsic value, uh, infinitesimally, uh, infinitesimally more than uh, The Dark Crystal, because there really is no, like, again, there's a lot of mythology, like, like there's a lot of George Lucas, like, level of mythology in the Dark Crystal of, like, oh, the good and bad being split apart, yep. and only through the reconciliation of the good and bad does peace come to the land. And they, yeah, um, there always has to be the same amount of them. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, some of them won't get to... Okay, this is my note at the end of the movie. What? So did putting the shard back in the crystal let the mystics buttfuck the Skeksis into transcendence? I hate this. And, and I was like, when this happened and they, they do this like weird, you know, back that ass up scene, uh, I'm like, how, how do they know there's always going to be the same amount of them? And then I remembered and I was like, ah, the orgy is always in balance. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that's that's what Lucas tried to do with the Star Wars film. Yeah, the fact yeah. That there's always it is always it's always balanced. So you got yep. the the again, in the sense of Star Wars, the force or just this mystical Oh god, uh, power that exists in the universe keeps everything in balance. The, the equation is always trying to balance itself out. Mm-hmm. And again, that's on a, myth, a mytholo- mythological level. That's a neat concept. It is because it's it's hard to do that properly. Like the Matrix films tried to do that. Like what was it? The uh, what in the second film? Was, like they're asking like why is Smith create like, having so many copies of himself? And the answer is it's the uh, equation trying to balance itself out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, unless you explain it properly or you do it through visual storytelling, um, it's hard to convey that properly. And I think. That 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 comes across rather well in this. Like I, I don't think there's any part of this plot that's confusing. I think oh, it's, oh, it's yeah yeah. It's, this is no vi- dragon blade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing will ever be dragon blade, right, Rob? <laughs> uh, but no, I I think this is rather like like remedial mythology. I don't think there's any learning curve here. It's pretty much everything's like surface level. Yeah yeah definitely, and I think that goes with what I was saying about the plot being. Maybe not loose, but weak, because it's just like, boom! Like, even in the opening narration, it's like, and now this character that we're looking at is the chosen one. And it's like, okay, I'm on, <laughs> I get it. Like, that that streamlines it, so fine. 
The thing I thought was interesting though is that like very early on, early on in the film, when we have uh, Guy McPuppet talking to Yoda, and Yoda's di- Yoda, whatever the creature's called, Yoda Sloth is dying. <laughs> that was filmed and created before Return of the Jedi, and it's almost oh, a practically yeah. identical sequence. Yeah, yeah. I just Does wonder, he say I- there is another? Does he say that? Because there's the other like Gelfin. Okay, he might. Yeah. <laughs> he might. And considering again, that's another thing too. Because I wonder with with Kira and Puppet McFace, it's like, could they have been brother and sister? Would that have been instead of having them be? I I don't think you could call them a romantic item in this. I I don't think so. But it's the idea that maybe they're more brother and sister as opposed to just. I guess they have to be non-related because they can rebuild the. I guess what uh, repopulate. Yeah, species. yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, uh, but yeah, like, like I said, I this movie. If you really like this movie, you probably could discuss it for a while. But it's just like it's such a, it's a mess, like on a visual level that you don't want to dig into it. It's kind of like one of those things where it's like somebody tells you, like, oh, here's the really crazy looking dish. It tastes delicious, but like its aesthetic level is like. D minus. Oh, it's yeah. like well, and it's like well, I don't care how good it, like, it will taste. It doesn't look appetizing. Thus, I'm going to avoid it like the plague. And I think that's probably part of the reason why this will always be a niche film at best because it yeah. is just such an ugly, ugly film, regardless of the technical craft that's behind it all. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of I'm, you know, like you said at the start, you were aware of this movie for a while. I have been as well, just through name. Maybe I've seen some of the puppets here and there, but I had never seen this before, ever tried to search it out. I am, I'm with you. I'm kind of baffled because I've always known this movie is like a cult classic. And and to me, now after seeing it and researching it, it's like, why? You know, this is just painful. <laughs> well, it's nostalgia. That's, yeah. again, nostalgia blinds everything. And that's... And I, I'm honestly trying to think of like another instance I have where something kind of like I love looks so ugly. Yeah, I'm blinded by it. I'm like, I, I can't think of anything. I really, like, I don't know. Like maybe some things are really kind of like rudimentary that I like. Mm-hmm, that sure, are just kind of sure. like, like, like hammy in retrospect. But nothing is just blatantly just kind of like, ugh. Like this is <laughs> it really is because like that's as we'll get into folks because uh, this film committed a cardinal sin and I'm not sure if Rob's ready to transition but this failed the test Rob this this did fail the test this and failed I, the test I guess because, this works out perfectly we should just discuss this movie in the middle of our discussion about the Dark Crystal <laughs> exactly because Rob I had to break it out and I told you you had to break it out. We went and found the Charles Bronson lookalike Death Wish movie, Death Kiss. Yep, and uh, as I called him, the non-Charles Bronson character, throughout the film, I think I, I like him being non bron nonsense bronson <laughs> non bron non what <laughs> non non bron nonsen bronson I like so calling it's him like, Charles Bronson's. I like that. <laughs> Charles so, yeah. Bronson's. I, 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 the, 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 when I was doing like non-bron, then I was thinking Bronson nonsense. But I was like, no, it's such nonsense that he would flip it. It'd be nonsense bronsense. It doesn't roll off the tongue as good as Bunce McGavin. No. But, but I, uh, I guess I wanted to tell Zach that I, I did not bust out this film in the middle of the Dark Crystal. Like I said, I was doing my research and I was just like, I need to power through the Dark Crystal because if I turned it off, I was never going to watch it again. 
And so the next day, literally yesterday for the, at the time of this recording, Zach's like, okay, we got to talk about Death Kiss, right? And I'm like, I didn't watch it, but I, I, I think I will if you want to discuss it. And I was hanging out with people yesterday because it was my turn to host the football things. And I was cooking and I was like, okay, got to watch this movie. And it was like <laughs> the seven people that were coming over were like, we're not going to just watch this movie and not watch football. So I had to watch Death Kiss after all the football oh. was over. And by that time, I was tired, intoxicated. The two people that stayed around, we were all just like, hey, we want to have a good time. So I wanted to let Zach know, while I watched this, I did see the whole thing, and I think I got a good grasp on it all, but I did not take notes. Oh, okay. So you'll have to, you'll have to probably fill in some of the details that I, maybe I missed or I was you know, laughing hysterically. Um, there was one scene that like detracted us from the movie for about 20 minutes um, <laughs> when he busts the drugs open in the guy's stomach. That was amazing. Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to let Zach know that this was kind right. of a last minute addition. It um, was. I, pl- but, I, I pulled this on him, folks. This is sure. not his fault. And, but I, I am not against it. I'm glad I watched it. This was a doozy. Way oh. better than The Dark Crystal, for oh. sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. So I guess I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast is that like there's a... Uh, Death Wish knockoff because it's called Death Kiss. It's by an actor called what? Charles Kovacs? Is yeah. That, some, is that some Kovacs? Yeah. Something like that. And what it is is that if you've seen any Death Wish film, there's like four or five like legitimate Charles Bronson Death Wish films. The first one's like a gritty 1970s, like, uh, I don't want to call it a crime thriller because what it is is that it's a guy taking the law into his own hands because that was when New York City really was like the Gotham, like with a capital G, where it was like it was just this kind of like hellhole. Like Times Square was a mess. This is long before like Giuliani and the corporations cleaned up Times Square. And it was a mess. So, like in the film, a bunch of like deviants rape and murder Charles Bronson's wife. He um in the movie Charles Bronson. Death Wish proper is a doctor. So what he does, he gets a revolver and he eventually becomes like a vigilante killer, just picks off these people. Yep. And then well, after he, you know what year the first Death Wish was? I think it's 71. I want to say 71, but I could be wrong. Okay. okay 74. To, 74. 74. Close enough. This. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Cause I was, whenever, whenever anybody talks to me about the, the Death Wish or the vigilantism, I'm always like, was it before or after Bernie Getz shot those people? Oh, and yeah. This was, this was before. 10 years before. So yeah. Bernie, Bernie Getz took some inf- inspiration from Charles Bronson. But this is also after Taxi Driver. Definitely, definitely. The idea of like so there was like a, there was precedent, yeah, yeah. And again, that's kind of like a thing. Like, okay, you have a crazed man, and take even though I think uh, what's his name, uh, Travis Bickle, and whoever Charles Bronson's character is in Death Wish, I think are two step like God, they are divergent characters. But it's the idea of the normal everyday man taking the law into his hands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the motives are completely separate, but it's still that notion of like it's a guy, an average citizen cleaning up the streets, and society being like, well, if the police aren't doing anything, so who are we to argue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've not seen the original Death Wish in a long time, but I definitely saw it because I, I. Pretty sure my mom really likes Charles Bronson. <laughs> Charles Bronson's great. Like he's one of those fantastic character actors that like you don't get anymore in movies. 
Like he really got he like it used to again. It's still true in Hollywood for the most part. Is that like if you had interesting enough face, you could always find work in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and that's what he was. Like he was a, he was a character actor for the longest time. Like he would show up in like oh god, like Saturday morning serials, whether it be like Have Gun, Will Travel, those yep. sort of things. And then eventually he graduated to things like The Dirty Dozen, The Great Escape, and he's great. Like you see Charles Bronson, you cannot mistake him for a second. He's he's Charles Bronson. Oh yeah. And, and so, like, with the Death Wish series, that first film, I, I guess, was popular because they made a ton of sequels. Uh, I think by the third or fourth one, it becomes almost, like, Rambo-esque, where he'll just go <laughs> into, like, like a slum with, like, like a bazooka and just murder everybody. And, and again, for what it is, it's absolutely bonkers and just fabulous. But I guess those sort of films aren't in vogue anymore because I know a couple of years ago, Eli Roth made the Bruce Willis death wish and like all the movie critics just came down upon it because this is, this is uh okay. What's the phrase the movie critics love uh, problematic. Yeah. Like this yeah. Is, this yeah. is problematic. And it's like, Oh my God. It's like, again, everybody's on their high horse. Again, we, we live on the high horse now. Nobody can ever come down from it. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, when this movie, again, I heard about it, like I had to be last year. And I'm like, oh boy, this is this is neat. We're making a, a Death Wish knockoff with knockoff Charles nonsense, or I'm sorry, Bronsense, <laughs> Bronsense, <And laughs> Bronsense. And I'm like, I, again, it's always been on my short list for years now. And especially with uh, Fan Denver Thanksgiving, it's like, okay, Rob, we need to have this like behind glass with like a little sign that says, "In case of emergency, break." Yep. And uh, the Dark Crystal was that break, folks. Like I, I, Rob, I did not stop the Dark Crystal because, like he said, I would not go back to it if I stopped it. So I watched it afterwards and I get like, I think I texted Rob, like I'm not even five minutes into the movie. And this might be the greatest thing I've ever watched. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like everything about this movie is so hammy and low budget, but oh, it's absolutely God. delightful because we have a Charles Bronson knockoff as the titular star. It really, it really is delightful. I, uh, I had it's a, it's a movie that's good fun. I would say. Oh yeah. Uh, all the like the the gore effects, the weird uh, dialogue between the characters. <laughs> I don't think I, I think uh, this has some of the worst looping in movie oh, history. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like they never, they don't like whoever the loop group and the ADR people were. They didn't understand the concept of room tone. So every no matter where they are, characters outside, indoors, anywhere, it all sounds like yeah. they're speaking directly into a microphone. And you're hearing it through headphones. Oh my god, it's 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 fun. It's fun. I'm Daniel Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> to him. To say. <laughs> we'll get to him. But yes, going back to your point about the sound mixing, I'm pretty sure the sound mixer was like a deaf mute. Like I am like 99 <laughs> percent convinced of that because it's 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 horrible the sound mixing. Oh, like yeah. even even beyond like it's beyond like the problems of low budget like any sort of low budget film you're willing to for like forgive some of the like weird things here and there, but like some like Rob said like even the ADR of like Charles Bronson Bronson at eh, Bronson's he, um, he never moves his lips while he's talking no, but we he hear him not. oh yeah <laughs> and to be fair at certain times while I was watching this I was referring to him as Death Kiss oh I'm like I'm like watch out Death Kiss is coming. Uh, like, but yes, I think, uh, I do want to give a nomination. I think is completely unjust last year that the little girl in the wheelchair character did not win an Oscar for possibly the greatest role in cinematic history. Oh my God. She, she has some of the greatest lines of dialogue that have ever been put to page and screen. She does. Uh, and I think how stale her delivery is makes them even funnier, but she's, she's definitely like. 
she's she's not all there it seems on screen <laughs> oh yeah because like the first line that was great was like i'm watching this and again i'm i'm barely five minutes into it and we have like uh, again i don't want to phrase it this way but i'm pretty sure this probably was like the character description when they were casting the character it's like the smoking hot latina mother or I guess sure. smoking hot Latina MILF, I would imagine was the uh, character description on the call sheet. And we have her like wheeling her daughter up the driveway to get the mail. And it's like, and like it's like, it's okay, honey, we'll get the mail, blah, 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 blah. And then like the daughter turns around, it's like, Mr. Fluffy got eaten by a coyote. And it's <laughs> like, what the hell? Where'd this come from? But what about that coyote who went Mr. Fluffy? <sighs> That was. Um... Can I get the mail? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like peeing myself, being like, oh my god. Because even prior to that, how the film begins, like you said, is Daniel Baldwin going off on like an Alex Jones level tirade. Mm-hmm. And it's glorious. Like it is like perfectly ham fisted. Like somebody broke into Alex Jones' studio and took his notes one day. <laughs> I do. I guess we should say the Daniel Baldwin stuff kind of doesn't really frame the movie but it it's like not an anchor point but you know we always go back to it it's like we get daniel baldwin scenes will play out daniel baldwin scenes will play out and he's kind of always describing at a higher level what's going on and of course there's that kind of reveal at the end that it explains why daniel baldwin's stuff he's talking about and charles bronson non-bron nonsense nonsense bronson uh like uh, is doing the stuff he's talking about. So I, I thought that all worked great. I thought that was really interesting. Well, yeah. And what it did, it was the whole thing with uh, Daniel Baldwin's character is that it's, they can't show like, like a city, like obviously they, they weren't shooting in New York or any sort of major city. So you can't show crime on the level that like a major Hollywood production can with like hundreds of extras. Yeah. So Daniel Baldwin's ranting is a, fl- a real life f- flourish to these events we're fleshing out the universe in mm-hmm. a very low cost way that doesn't undermine what the film's trying to convey to us oh yeah yeah right and on. like you said it's clever that eventually that how the film ties him in to the narrative he's not just like this outside like quasi in-universe narrator mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah they're uh, they're what he's like uh the watched the the watchtower person to the justice league <laughs> sure essentially Charles uh, Bronson is his, is Batman, and um, Daniel Baldwin is Commissioner Gordon's daughter. <laughs> something like that. But no, but like we have some like like most of the Death Wish movies that you see some like criminal performing a heinous crime. Charles Bronson shows up and like shoots them in the gut, and they die a horrible death. Yeah. Like like we should say that the Death Wish films, at least the first one, was never like a gory film. Like yes, he would shoot people and they'd be blood, but like he never shot someone's head and it like blew like blew up. Into like mm-hmm. a pulpy mess. It was never like overly gory. This is certainly more gory than those, like the first film was. But for the most part, he shoots people like in the abdomen and they have the uh, 300 effect where they have a thousand blood pressure and their blood goes yes. in every single direction. Not only is it the 300 effect of the incredible blood pressure, I think the people in this movie inherently have more blood than humans have. <laughs> yeah. And it's all concentrated right where their wound is going to be. Yes, yes. Their blood knows, like, oh man, I'm gonna get shot here in a couple of minutes. Better get ready. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like no, by going through the film real quick, because again, Rob didn't take notes. 
Um, again, the whole plot of it is like in a nutshell. I guess I don't think we can spoil. Like we're gonna spoil it though, but it's not really much of a spoiler. Is that uh, Charles? Well, I, Bronson, have, I have something to say about the end of this movie for sure. <laughs> oh sure, but no. But give our audience a little bit of a plot synopsis. Sure. Is that Charles Bronson goes around shooting people again? When he kills these people, he like takes their money, but burns like any sort of like jewelry or anything like that to make it look like it was uh, a robbery. So it's mm-hmm. not just somebody picking off uh, scumbags. And what he does with the money is he gives it to the smoking hot like Latina milf and her daughter. And throughout the whole film, like the smoking hot Latina milfs, like, why are you keep giving like us money? Why do you keep coming around here and being yep. like very mysterious? And even at one point we have a fantastic sequence where like she invites him over for lunch and she's like standing in her bedroom, like takes her shirt off. And she's like, is this what you want? Is this what you want from me? And he's like, walks away. And it's like, honey, like if he wanted you for your body, like he would have made that pretty clear earlier on. Like, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, that's a weird thing. Like that should be like very early in the film. Like, like maybe the second time when she like encounters him, it should yeah. be like, oh, you're using me for my body. And, and I, it's like, I, I love the way that scene plays out because earlier in the movie, she's like, I need to know, tell me why. And he goes, I've done some bad things, and giving you money is how it balances out. And I'm like. Okay, you know, that's a movie explanation. And then when she takes her shirt off and she's like, do you want to fuck me, Charles Bronson? And he goes, no, I just wanted to give you a gun and protect you. And she's like, I don't understand. Why, why do you keep giving us this money then if it's not for sex? And he goes, I literally told you already. It's to balance yeah. the scales. And I'm like, that's a great answer. <laughs> like, shut up, bitch. You, I told you. I think I understand. Why you help? Am I what you want? I thought this was what you wanted. I'm just trying to understand why. I already told you. You said you give us money to make up for some things you do, but you've never told me what you do. If you know what I do, You'll never want to see me again. Not true. Talk to me. <sighs> yeah, that's like it's weird because like and I get it. They don't want to make it obvious because like the moment like and, and they do a pretty good job of keeping the twist, if we even call it that, a secret until the very end. I like, I have to disagree. I thought it was uh, painfully obvious from the first time they established not the not the scene in the the Mister Fluffy got eaten by a coyote. But the second scene, when he sh- when she's like realizes that he's the one giving them the money because the guy steals the money out of her mailbox. Yeah, and and uh, I'm just like, oh, like clearly anybody in this situation should be like, either you caused my daughter to be paralyzed or something you did caused my daughter to be paralyzed. And when that when that second scene with them when they meet the first time they meet, that's the only thing I could think. I was like, uh, okay. he fucked up in a, in a, his vigilante thing. And shot this little girl by accident, and this is him repaying it. As the movie goes on, though, we get that, like the, I guess the the bad guy. I think everybody's the bad guy except the, <laughs> the mother and the daughter and the Daniel Baldwin and Charles Bronson. But the bad guy has that one line of dialogue where he's like, "I don't know who this guy is. He keeps trying to kill me." And I'm like, "Oh no!" I'm like, "So either Charles Bronson hurt, kill, uh, paralyzed the little girl." Or this dude did, and he's trying to get it back. 
And so at that point, which is, you know, like not even halfway into the movie, I'm like, so which one's it going to be? Which way is the movie going to fall? Like, how are the writers going to decide? Should it be Charles Bronson's that shot her or should it be the thug? Like, which way is it going to fall? So I saw the twist coming because knowing they were going to uh, reveal that. But I didn't know which way they were going to go. And it turns out the movie doesn't even know which way it was going to go because it no, doesn't I, go anyway. <laughs> well, I think it's meant to be ambiguous. It's oh, yeah. A hundred percent. And that's why I actually loved it, because I was so convinced it was going to fall in one way or the other. The movie was like, nope, we don't know. And I was like, oh, that that actually is kind of a twist. Well, yeah. And even like earlier on in the film, well, toward the end, he even goes like, I'm the bad guy, too. Like, it's only a matter of time mm-hmm. until like I'm doing this stuff. But I'm not doing it because we get like a pretty – there's a sequence in this when we're first introduced to our like villain, if you can even call him that. I think because, Tyrell is his name. Sure, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and like he brings – it's like, yo, my son was like sentenced to jail because you didn't like off the guy like for the witness. And the guy's like, no, man, I'm so sorry. It's like, okay, we need, we need to prove your street cred. So like we have this yep. person like, chi- like tied to a chair. And there's like gratuitous use of the M word, which I was shocked by. I'm like, oh, my God. It was oh kind of like <laughs> it was like the shining. It's like, oh, my God. I'm like someone using the – it's like, yikes. Like, like how much do you have to pay that actor to say the M word? It's like, ooh, you didn't yeah. need to use that word. Just as um, I did uh, when I watched The Shining when I was watching this last night. Where it had to be like 11 p.m. This part of the movie comes on, Colorado time. And we hear the N-word, and I did the good old N-word alert, N-word <laughs> alert. And I was, like, telling the other two people who don't listen to this podcast because they're fools. Uh, I was, like, I was like, this doesn't make – like, in The Shining, back in that day, like, sure, it's in there. It's a different time. But this movie was from not even a few years ago, right? This no. is recent. Yeah, this is, like, within a year or two. Yeah, so I was, like, oh, my God, you know? Yeah, yeah it's, it's jarring. I get it. The character's supposed to be vile. I, I again – Fine. Yeah, but, you um, know, you had to, you had to throw in some racism before he, you know, rapes Tits McGee in the movie. <laughs> we'll get to that. Don't spoil that just yet. Okay. And every, um, I want I, Zach. Uh, we, when we get to it, I'll be using the terms because they're very different. There's a Tits McGee in this movie, and there's also a Tats McGee in this. Oh, movie. they're oh. in the same scene too. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh. <laughs> Fair enough, Rob. Fair enough. Well, well played. I just got that. Um, no, it's like we have that. They bring the guy who was supposed to do the hit, and they say, if you want to prove your street cred, you got to beat this person up. He beats this guy to death with a baseball bat. They take the uh, shroud they have over his head. It turns out to be the guy's father and because they're going to punish this guy for not committing the original hit. And after that, they they have the guy's wife because the guy was just – like apparently just married and like mm. rob said the wife character is tits mcgee she's there just so we can have some uh, tna in the film and for some reason wall our uh uh like a bad guy hitman has to like force him watch as our main villain rapes his wife in some yep. of the most jar like the most jarring rape sequence i've ever seen in my life where we get like a shot of the woman being raped like from the front but we don't see the guy like behind her but then we get another, like, a reverse shot of the guy behind her, but we don't see her face at all. Like, it's really, it's awkwardly yeah. shot. Yeah, I, I, that stood out to me, too, because it's like they they show him throw her down, and it's like, okay, clearly, you know, we, we see where this is going. And, but then you're right. They, they, like, put a divider in between them. Yep. And the shots of her are, like, the top of her torso. She's all, you know, crying and, and getting, you know, raped. And But you can clearly see the wall, the divider yep. that prevents you from seeing him and the bottom half of her. And then yeah. the reverse shot is the same thing, but from his perspective, where you yep. see the wall on the right. And I'm like, 
I guess this is a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's weird. It's peculiar. But yeah. while he's while the bad guy is raping Tits McGee, Charles Bronson shows up, and it's like uh, the guy like gets nicked in the uh, the bad guy gets nicked in the elbow. Mm-hmm. The uh, this time the 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 poor man's henchman, I'm sorry, hitman is still there, and it's like don't like, don't come near me, Charles Bronson's. I'll blow his brains out. And Charles Bronson is like, go ahead, like 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 let me finish it for you. And he like shoots yeah. the bullet right through the guy's neck, and then like it's like oh, it's it's deliciously glorious. It's like oh, yeah. yeah, that was that was awesome. Where he's like he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna blow this dude away. I don't even know who he is. Bam. <laughs> oh yeah, one bullet through two of them. Fucking kill him, man. I don't know him. <laughs> And then we have a chase of Charles Bronson's after Tats McGee yes, that goes on yes. for like a half an hour as we had like, like if it was shot better, it'd be a pretty interesting like gunfight. Way too much slow motion at a certain point when he pulls out, when Tits, uh, Tats McGee pulls out an Uzi out of a random car. Yep. Like yep. with an engine in it and everything still, he oh, has yeah. an Uzi under the hood of a car. Rob, you can never be just... too prepared when it comes to uh, being a drug dealer henchman. Come on. And then just slow motion, like nobody's business. And there's a mud puddle for no reason at a certain point. <laughs> yep. And while this is all going on, we have a very like clunky, edited together, like like choreographed gunfight. And that maybe the better, I think the location, it's weird. Like the actors are doing their job. The location's really cool, mm-hmm. but like it just doesn't click. And then eventually, yeah. like I Charles- think the, the set was too obstacle course for me to believe it because they have they do have some great shots where you know Charles Bronson or Tats McGee will be running and the camera will following them. Like you know, if someone ducks through an old dilapidated car, the camera will go down through that car, and they show it off so much that I'm just like, they just built a fucking obstacle course, like. This is this is like the doggy daycare obstacle course. Just they repurposed and put some cars in there. Like here, run through the tube, jump over this thing, and it just felt so fake to me. Yeah, like again, I I don't know. That felt like a real set. Anybody who's been to like a car junkyard knows that sort of thing. Um, that didn't feel staged in the sense of like they put those things in the way. That felt very realistic, where someone just like dumps these things for scrap in a lot, and they got access to it. It had that randomness to it. And I think that's why it comes across so clunky is that it wasn't staged. So your actors aren't able to run. You're not able to get the angles and the coverage you'd probably want. And it's kind of like, okay, it would cost too much to do this ourselves. So we're just going to find a real life location, pay the owner of the land, probably like a thousand dollars and shoot here for a weekend. And I think even though that's probably cheaper in the long run, it detracts from like the fluidity of the film and the shot and the sequence. Hmm. I, uh, that's at least my take on it. Sure, sure. I think I'd have to watch it again to get a sense of it again. But I find it really interesting that we we disagree on the reason, but feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We both diagnose the same problem, though. But how we got there is two separate ways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But no, how this eventually ends. Charles Bronson gets the upper hand on Tats McGee, and like he's about to shoot him, but then he walks away. He goes back into like the the shed or warehouse where mm-hmm. Tits McGee is, where she's still like her top is like unbuttoned, and like she's still kind of like in shock from being raped. And he like drags her out by like her elbow, and she he's like do it, and she's like, like what? He's like shoot him, and it's like Mister, I won't tell anybody. Shoot him, then I don't have to worry about you telling anybody. Yeah. And the whole time while this is going on, the guy's like, just call the cops, man. 
And then eventually the guy just starts like bouncing off to the woman, be like, stupid whore, slut, <laughs> slut. And that, but, like, that was hilarious. I oh, was like, yeah. I was like, I don't think these people know each other before this interaction. <laughs> and I'm like, is this like has Tats McGee ever spoken before in his life? Like, if somebody <laughs> has a gun pointed at you, you don't taunt them, especially if your boss has just been raping them. Yes. Like your chance of living after doing these things is zero. Like you're not walking out of here alive. Yeah, that's uh, putting it that way, that makes that scene like the weirdest instance of peer pressure. Because you got Charles Bronson who's like, yo, you have to murder this dude. And then eventually the dude who's supposed to get shot is also like, come on, murder me. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's. Oh, hey, stop. Please, just stop. I'll let me go. You've seen my face. I won't say anything, I swear. Just let me go. Not good enough. Okay, listen, I swear I won't say a word. I won't say anything. All right, please. Shoot him. Fuck you. Why? Why? Does somebody call the police? Fucking do it. Fucking do it yourself. I can't do it. Please. No choice. You fucking coward. I can't murder someone. <sighs> All right? Somebody call the police. I can't do it. I won't say anything. Just let me go. Please. Please. Okay? Okay? Fucking whore. Fucking dirty ass whore. No. Fucking do it. Pull the trigger. Fucking shoot me then, bitch. Fuck you, whore. Fucking. Fucking do it. Fucking shoot me then, you stupid whore. Fucking do it. Fucking shoot me. Fucking shoot me. Fuck you. one way to describe this movie is like i know we talked about it a few times on cinematis where like like when they had the joke on the internet someone would be like oh like i like downloaded 400 hours of olive garden commercials into a computer it had spit out <laughs> like what like a computer's version of that sort of commercial would look like yeah i yep. think this is the equivalent of death wish it feels oh. like a, it feels like a computer made this film it, like it yep. has all the elements of a death wish film yet none of it congeals the way a death wish film should yeah i i would agree from the little bit i remember and i understand death wish for sure yeah because then we have like that and we do like we have a point where our main like antagonist oh, so dro- i do oh, sorry, i yeah. do want to mention that uh tits mcgee shoots tats mcgee yes like four or five times oh yeah she uh yeah like, she, she doesn't she, need to do it more than once to satisfy charles bronson's but she goes all out and you know what I call that, Zach? Tat for tit. <laughs> <laughs> aren't, you, aren't you so Hey-o. clever, Ron? <laughs> After that, we go to our antagonist drug dealer character, and he's like, with it's like he's at some house, and he and the woman's like, You shouldn't be here. Like, I have a restraining order against you. And he's like, Shut up, bitch. And 
I have drugs for you. She's like, you're, you son of a bitch. You know I've been clean for six months. He's like, come get your drugs, like, junkie. And she's like, God damn it. She, like, like dumps her head, yeah. like, in a, like, a gallon bag. And I'm yeah, like, oh, she, this is great. She, has a, uh, she says, like, you know how long it took me to get clean? And he has a great line where he says something like, he's like, he's like, you need a thousand pressure washers won't make you clean or something like that. Put it away. Come on now. Didn't I always take care of you? You know how long it took me to get clean, you son of a bitch! Clean. <laughs> Pressure washer couldn't keep you clean. <laughs> oh, it's deliciously, like, over oh, yeah. the top dialogue. Oh, yeah. And that's also the scene where the drug dealer guy is like, ah, oh, this guy just keeps chasing me and killing all my friends. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the part, too. Is like, we have a villain. And even though I don't think... I, can't, I haven't... Again, Death Wish, I'm trying to think of the very specifics of that, but I don't think any of those films ever had, like, a great, great villain... And I guess this follows that trend of having kind of like, I don't want to say an impotent villain, but it's like there's never any issue of like Charles Bronson's killing him. It's just a matter of what. Yeah, because the just, villain is never doing anything to protect himself from Charles Bronson. Like Charles Bronson just keeps showing up and causing or inconveniencing his, his criminal activities. Exactly. He, he's supposed to be a gangbanger. So it's like he's not going to have any sort of grand plan to ensnare mm-hmm. Charles Bronson. Bronson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I but yeah, he's a he's a barbe- barbecue banger. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, I actually only have maybe like three more things to talk about this film. Um, I guess one of them is the ending, where we have sure. our antagonist drug dealer character tie somebody up to a tree, and his way of killing them is dumping barbecue sauce on them. Yeah, to attract the wolves. Yeah, to attract wildlife. Yeah, and he has the the one of the fucking funniest lines I've heard in a while from a villain monologuing. Is he like has the? It's right before, right after he pours the barbecue sauce. So he's still holding the bottle, and he's like, "Wolves, wolves can smell up to a smell things up to a mile and a half away in the cold. Bears, they can smell up things up to twenty miles away. I don't know if that's true." <laughs> You know, the only thing you got to be afraid of out here are the animals. You know, I'm talking mountain lion, whatever. When you come out here, you're part of the food chain again. Remember that? Hmm? You got that? Yeah. That's why I brought this. Oh. And I also brought this. A little barbecue sauce, hmm? Oh, smell it. Oh, it smells good. Mm, yeah. <laughs> We're going to invite some company around here. <laughs> hey, you know, a wolf can smell something a mile and a half away in the cold. Not to mention the bears. Hell, they can smell something 20 miles away. Yeah. You know, I don't know if any of that's true, but... Wait, wait, wait. What am I talking about? The, the bears, they're all still in hibernation. So all you got to worry about are the mountain lions or, or the wolves. And I'm like, why would you, why would you, even if you don't know if it's true, why would you say that to this dude? Why would you include that in the script? Yeah, exactly. I think that was like a note that they thought was an actual line in the script. <laughs> like someone read that, read the first two sentences and was like, I don't know if this is true. And then someone thought it was the next it's, line. <laughs> it's, it was an annotation in like in the research phase. It just made it somehow yeah. into the final film. Yeah, someone color coded it wrong and it made it in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I love at the end after Charles Bronson is tied up like antagonist drug dealer man. And he does the exact same thing. But I love the motions 
of Charles Bronson's dumping the barbecue sauce <laughs> on the guy. Like, it is yeah. such exaggerated, like, shaking the, like, the bottle of barbecue sauce. Yeah, oh, it, he's trying to get it all out onto him. Oh, yeah, it's just, like, it's so labored. And it's, like, it's delightful. Like, absolutely delightful. Just, like, how he's just, like, flailing it around. And I'm like, oh, god damn. Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching it now and it's hard not to laugh. Like it's genuinely comical. Like at one point he's he's two handing it. He's actually yep. two handing a bottle of uh, barbecue yes. sauce. Um, yeah, it's 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 bonkers, folks. It's it's everything you could ever could want from a knockoff Death Wish film. Um, and then I guess the final moment I want to highlight is that we have on top of uh, the Coyotes eight Mr. Fluffy from Wheelchair Girl. She has the greatest line of dialogue possibly in all of just media beyond just filmmaking, uh, in, in books, in radio, in, in stage productions. She says the line, and I don't want to butcher it, so I'm not going to say it here. I'm going to just insert the clip directly. Maybe he's doing it because he's in love with you. I don't think so. I do. Besides, someone should be in love around here. Um... I'm the only person old enough to be in love here, Missy. You're 10. It wouldn't matter if I was 20. What's that supposed to mean? You know. No, I don't. Hold me. I'm crippled, Mom. No one's ever going to fall in love with me. I can't even walk. I'm in a wheelchair. Nobody will ever love me. I can't even walk, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like I watched that and I'm like, God damn movie. Whoever wrote you is brilliant. And I love the fact, like, in any other movie, like about like a paraplegic kid, that might work as like a dramatic like moment, being like, yeah. Oh, the little kid feels like they're like they are like oh god, perpetually alienated by their condition. Yet a moment in a line of dialogue like that has no place in this movie. Yet it's here. And I don't know, considering this is supposed to be like a schlocky movie. In that you're appealing to people like Rob and I I don't know how that moment Is anything else but an intentional Laugh out loud moment Yeah I uh, I was trying to think of that as well Like what the hell does this do Because the wheelchair girl is just a motivator She's not even a real character no. She's just to motivate Charles Bronson's And and the mother's kind of storyline About why he's giving them money And I was thinking maybe the movie is trying to say that, like, no matter how much money Charles Bronson's give this family, like, the damage of this bullet in her spine is never really going to go away. But that doesn't make sense at the point that this occurs in the movie and how it never comes up again. Because yeah, that- the last scene we get of of the um of the the milf mom is that the milf mom? Wow, the, <laughs> Latina, the, uh, the smoking hot Latina milf. Yes, the smoking hot Latina milf. The last scene we get of her is she like gets another thing of money from Charles Bronson yep. and looks at her daughter and I'm like so so this is a good thing like what also well, yeah, I'm, with well, you. I'm with you I'm with I, you Zach. I don't know I kind, of, I kind of expected a moment in this too where eventually like antagonist drug man like breaks into the woman's house the smoking hot Latina milf yeah. and there'd be a moment where she she doesn't kill the guy I'm sorry uh, Charles Bronson doesn't kill him she does and even though you might still have that ambiguous ending you at least have like Oh, she feels guilty smoking hot Latina milf mom because she was the one bringing her daughter there for like drug, like the, for herself 
to get mm-hmm. drugs. But now, even though she caused this by putting her daughter in the line of danger, she resolved it. Because now this person can never hurt anybody ever again. And yeah, like, oh, and we, yeah. And we even have the montage of uh, Charles Bronson's teaching her how to use a firearm. And that really doesn't go anywhere. Other oh, than God, just she like plays it so ditzy and it's annoying to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's 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 par for the course, unfortunately. Sure. And but yeah, I was kind of expecting that to like, oh, that's gonna be like considering we get so many shots of this house, this is gonna be like the where the final confrontation is. Yeah, and, I, I thought for sure either something like that was gonna happen, or we were gonna get the scene where uh, she figures out or learns that Charles Bronson was involved in her daughter getting paralyzed. We have that like dip in the second act where they gotta fall back in love or whatever. Whatever this is. relationship is, yeah. yeah. But I'm glad I'm glad you bring it up because something that me and my buddies were baffled by was the backstory of how the mother was going to buy drugs and the daughter got paralyzed. Um, I hope you like vegetables. I'm kind of trying to overcompensate as a mother, and I pretty much only cook healthy food for my daughter. Overcompensate. Yes. It's just that um, I used to make bad life choices, as they say. I was a party girl. I liked drinking and getting high. And I guess now that you're finally here in person, you should know the truth. It might make you want to stop sending us money. And you hear what I did. But I always said if I ever met you, I'd tell you. So you know exactly who you're being so charitable with. You send us this money because you think we're victims of circumstance. My daughter being paralyzed by a random bullet. But, well, the truth is, I was on my way to my dealer's house. And I had Isabel with me because I was an irresponsible mother. And before we could knock on the door, we heard gunshots from inside. My dealer was involved in a shootout with some people inside. We turned to run away, but a bullet went through the door. And hit my little girl in the spine. She'll never walk again. That's my fault. An accident. I wish I could believe that. I didn't tell you so you would make me feel better. No one can. Trust me. Because in the movie, she's like, I'm an irresponsible. She says the line something like, I was going to pick up from my dealer and I brought my daughter with me because I'm an irresponsible mother. And then it's like, she goes on to say that we went up to the door. We went up to the door and then gunshots started happening. And as we were running away, the bullet hit this girl in the spine, the, the daughter in the spine. So this implies that they did not drive a car to the drug dealer's house. They had to yeah. walk. Because if you took your fucking daughter to a drug deal, why wouldn't you leave her in the car? Yeah. 
I, so we were baffled by this. Or we were thinking also, could it be the case where, where they go up, they pull up to the drug dealer's house. It's this really dilapidated, like, trap house looking thing. And the mother turns to the daughter and goes, do you want to come in and see Uncle Freddy? He's got <laughs> some drugs for me. Yeah. And it's like a family event type of thing. Oh, that made no sense to me. <laughs> the Cinemati's trap house coming soon to the restaurant. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a bouncy ha- there's a bouncy castle in the back. <laughs> a deflated bouncy castle. There you go. <laughs> it's just like it's like those air pocket cushions you get like when you order things from Amazon. That's what it, that's what it is in reality. Oh yeah. Yep. The poor man's uh bouncy castle. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I guess after all that I have one final question regarding uh Death Kiss. Okay. Is I did a- I did uh there was one oh, scene. Sure, sure. The uh the drugs in the airport scene. Oh yes, I'm, I forgot. About this that. was so fucking funny to me. To this, uh, okay. So the opening of the movie is Charles Bronson goes and frees, or I guess kind of frees, like he murders the captors and the the rapist of this like underage girl. And as X said, you know, he steals all their stuff to like, make it look like a robbery, whatever. But the plot moves on. Oh wait, no, I'm confusing things. It's not the first thing. Charles Bronson just murders two other people randomly. And the people are like waiting. They're like texting somebody. And the guy's like, oh, we made it through security. He's on the plane. And after Charles Bronson kills those guys, he's about to like burn their cell phone. But he gets a text on the cell phone that says something like, oh, my God, are you guys coming to pick me up? I need to crap this stuff out of me. My stomach hurts so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, we're, and it comes up like, like a men, woman, and children text bubble. And we're like, what? what is going on? Clearly, someone was running drugs. That's, that's obvious what they've established. So now Charles Bronson is going to go kill him. And so right off the bat, we're all like, okay, this dude just flew from somewhere, and he's got balloons of drugs stuffed up his butt. That's what we thought. And so we're like, oh, my God, this is going to happen. Like the scene sets. Charles Bronson goes into the airport, finds the dude, like goads him on with some money, and we're like, Charles Bronson is going to kick this dude to the nuts. He's going to shit out heroin. And <laughs> oh, it's going to yeah. be amazing. Because we're just like, that's that's how you do it. You, you stuff it up your butt. That's what we've always heard. I've never done it, Zach. I don't know about you. But that's like the usual thing, you know? You stick it up there and you hold it in and then you let it out when you when you land. Apparently, this dude fucking swallowed them. Mm-hmm. And they were in his stomach. I don't think you can digest that. I think that would kill you regardless of if the balloons popped, but the scene still plays out awesomely because Charles Bronson punches him and knees him in the stomach, popping the balloons, and he just overdoses right there. And and I also love the tiny fact that Charles Bronson does this because he notices that a security guard is distracted because yeah. he's talking to a woman. <laughs> I like the fact, like you said, it takes place like in an air, like airport terminal. And I, and I get it. This is supposed to be a very, uh, you know, it takes place in the modern like age. We don't get a lot of like technology. There's not a lot of cell phones. There's nothing yeah. like that. Like no smartphones. But I find it interesting that like they, like even back in the day, like the like the original Death Wish, there were always security cameras in airports. Like ever since the security oh, yeah. camera was like closed circuit television, like it was you always had that sort of like security feature and i'm like you're doing this in broad daylight in the middle of the airport it's like and that's a couple times too even with charles bronson like he doesn't like he's not wearing gloves when Mm -hmm. he's like doing things i'm like that's stupid 
because yeah, like, yep. like he should be very careful because that was because I know they obviously can't use any of the names. I think what the smoking hot Latina asked like what his asked what his name is, and he's like, just call me Mister K. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think I forget what his name is in the original film, but it's something with the first letter K, his okay, last okay. name. Makes sense. So yeah, you're skirting around copyright law or infringement. Yeah. And uh, but no, but that that sequence kind of like it's it's like Rob said, it's great, but like the reality of it's just like it's so wonky at that point. Oh yeah. Oh, it's it's great. It's great. <laughs> I knew I was in for a ride from the beginning oh, scenes, and it just it was just pushing up and up, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with that being said, so my final question is, how do we think Charles, Charles Kovacs or whoever, not Charles Bronson, Bronson's mm-hmm. death kiss, not Charles Bronson. How did he do as a impersonator? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, like I said before, I haven't seen the death wish movies. I don't think I've seen Charles Bronson anything in a while, so I don't remember it exactly, but I guess where I want to start my answer is that. I didn't have an issue with it. I thought he was the best part of the movie, just seeing him like be his super badass, you know, plot armor self. Uh, and then even the end where he's like, we all deserve to die. I'm going to die soon, but now is your time. And it's like, great, you know, great, just straight up action hero. And if that's what Charles Bronson was like in the original Death Wish and maybe the sequels, then yeah, I thought he did a good job. But I guess from my perspective, I thought it worked well with the movie and maybe not even with the movie, it worked well as the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, my biggest concern is, again, he is ADR, and it's pretty horrible at times. Oh, like, you know yeah. it's not his voice. But I guess the thing was is that probably the actor can't speak English very well. Because oh, the whole time, I'm like, yeah. unless the guy has like a high-pitched, squeaky voice, <laughs> just use his natural voice. Like, come on. And then I realized it's probably someone who doesn't speak English. And if they that, do, has yeah. a horrible accent that would detract from the film. So they had to go find someone to do an imitation of the voice. But considering that that is your, oh God, that is the the gimmick. That's the hook of this film. You think they would have put a lot, like most of their money into like perfecting the ADR of, of just him. Yeah, Considering exactly. that the entire film is writing on this being a not Charles Bronson <laughs> knockoff of Death Wish. Definitely. That was kind of my biggest disappointment. Like you couldn't, like, I, I get it. This is low budget. It, it didn't have a lot of money, but this is your gimmick. You have to put as much money as you can into this. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. And that, that probably would have improved this. Um, at least that technical aspect that, like you said, does detract a little bit. Yeah. Cause again, a lot of this too, as I was watching it, I'm like, are they trying to make it like it's so bad? It's good. Like even during that, like uh, junkyard, like do- uh, gunfight, some of it, it like Rob says, goes on forever. And it's like, oh, is this just being gratuitous because they're trying to be like, oh, this is so silly. Look at how goofy this is. And that it feels mm-hmm. like that where they're playing into that trend, which isn't really popular anymore of so bad it's good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, I guess that's uh, that's Death Wish in the Dark Crystal. Yeah, what? well, well, the Dark Crystal, I have some other. Oh, oh, you still, oh there's now. still more. OK. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Did I do it right? I don't think I don't think I want to do it right. <laughs> oh God, it's, it's horrible. So, so uh, this we have to talk about. It's been a while on Cinemodity since we've done it. I don't think we've done anything that uh, has lent itself to it. But voice acting, the voice acting in the Dark Crystal is one of the worst things I've ever heard. From from every every aspect, I couldn't stand it. Not so much so in the other issues I've had with voice acting, where people don't know how to control their voice. This was more of just, I don't think any of the voices fit with any of the characters. 
And I want to start off with that. Uh, I can't even. I didn't write her name down. The astronomer, the ugly witch astronomer, that is barely in this movie, but they once again they were just like, "Hey, look at this character! Doesn't it look crazy?" And so, uh, Gelfling Guy McGelfling gets to her, and she, he's like, "Yo, what's up with the crystal shard? What's up with the grand conjunction?" And she's like, "I'm not gonna tell you until seventy minutes from now." And she gives like the worst dialogue delivered in the worst possible way. Like I'm going to get the clip in if I can, I might just rip the audio so I don't have to watch this movie and then cut up the clips. What's it for? Hmm? Hmm? Is that what you want to know? You want to know what this is all about? Is that it, Gelflin? You don't know? You've never looked at the heavens. Everything in the heavens is here moving as the heavens move this is how to know when that's what suns moons stars yes the angle of eternity that's how i know it's coming how else can i make the prediction a thousand years ago there was a great conjunction i was there Three suns lined up. That's when the crystal cracked. That's when the Skeksis appeared. And the mystics. Another great conjunction coming up. Anything could happen. The whole world might burn up. End of Olga. <laughs> but I, this was just so bad to me. Like, the voice doesn't match, even though it's this crazy, ugly witch character. She's just spouting off literally nothing, like vacuous nonsense dialogue. And I'm like, this is so bad. This is horrendous. Who voiced this person? I hope they never work again. And this is where <laughs> this is where everything started to go bad. Because when I look at the voice, So for the <laughs> witch, the witch was actually voiced by someone named Billy Whitelaw. Uh, oh, really? I, oh. Yeah. So apparently uh, in, in early versions of the production, Frank Oz was the voice, but then Jim Henson wanted to switch it because Jim wow. Henson has a fundamental misunderstanding of the book Watership Down. We'll get to that. Uh, so Billy Whitelaw <laughs> is the voice. And I, I looked this up and I'm like, you know, OK, you know, go to the IMDb and the Wikipedia and all the sources and check it out. And I see Billy Whitelaw and my immediate reaction. I felt like Zach because Zach says it all the time. Oh, no. Billy Whitelaw is one of like the best actresses ever. She was Samuel Beckett's muse. Like 60% of Samuel Beckett's plays were written for her. Like they were an artistic powerhouse and she went on to do this shit. Fuck. Uh, that was very disappointing for me to hear. It gets worse. She's not the worst in this movie. The worst by far is the goddamn evil Turkey that makes the hot. <laughs> Every time we see this stupid fucking character, the camera zooms in on his face a little bit and he's looking at something and he goes, mm. they do this so much. It was, it was grating on me. Like I was literally like, Oh my God, please make it stop. So many of my notes are just like, oh my God, these are fucking killing me and that type of thing. So once again, 
after we get some dialogue from this character, specifically in the scene where he's trying to convince the Gelflings that he's good, we get one of the worst displays of voice acting in history where this, this evil turkey is like, no, I'm good. You need to come over to this side and take you back to the castle. And the Gelfling with the shard, Guy McGelfling, is conflicted on what to do. And so Kira starts saying, no, like, don't do it. But the turkey just goes, yes, yes, please, yes, please, please, yes, yes, please. And it goes on for so fucking long. I was like, did, the, did my copy of the movie break? Is it skipping? Show them Gelfling will not harm us. Please, please, please. Jen! No! Come, please, please. Yes, please. Yes! No! Come on, Karen. No! Wait! Please? Please? Wait! Please make peace! It is such bad voice acting. I was like, okay, I gotta see who this is. And I look it up, and I didn't know the name immediately, but this character, the Chamberlain, is voiced by Barry Denon. And I go, Barry Denon, I hope you have never worked in Hollywood ever again. And it turns out that Barry Denon, we've seen very recently on Cinemodities. Uh -oh. He is none uh -oh. other than Bill Watson from The Shining. The guy who has like... Oh, really? Yeah, he has like three to five words of dialogue. And I, I can only imagine, I hope Stanley Kubrick had a sentence for him or like a scene for him and was like, nope, nope, Barry, Barry, your voice sucks. We're, we're cutting. The only thing you're going to get to say is when Stuart Ullman asks you to get the bags, they're going to go, fine. No problem. Back we had time to grab a bite to eat. Good. Glad you made it before they shut down the kitchen. Is your family having a look around? No, my son's discovered the game is wrong. Oh. Has your luggage been brought in? Right there. Oh, fine. Well, in view of all the ground we have to cover today, I suggest we go have a quick look at your apartment and then get started straight away. Bill, would you have the Torrance's things brought to their apartment? Fine. I better collect my family first. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, once again, I was like, oh, no, like, this movie is dragging everybody down with it. I didn't even know that. How about that? Oh, yeah. So Barry Denon never, I don't know if he's still alive. I didn't look that far, but. <laughs> no, no more voice acting. No more voice acting. Oh, and then even the stuff at the end with the the, the girl Gelfling it can talk to animals, and she's trying to summon oh, something. Rob, of course, she can talk to animals. Oh yeah, of course. Of that, course. One of one of my notes. It was after the animals, but when she got wings, like it just you know, of course, the Deus Ex Machina is for her to have wings so they can escape the uh, the black lobster monsters. And I my note was. Isn't it great when a story establishes that our main characters are an unknown species to us and gives us no information about them, so literally basic facets of their anatomy can be deus ex machina later? Like, that's, of course, that's great writing. It's just like, you know, oh, I love, here's this character. You don't know anything about him. Uh, uh, 200 pages later, you know, I'm thinking of novel, but however many pages in a script. Oh, it turns out he can breathe underwater. Isn't that fun? No! That's the farthest thing from fun. There's no rules, and I shouldn't care about any rules that you establish if you do that to me. I, I can't stand it, Zach. And that looks bad. The wings <laughs> looked really bad. <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess, okay, one thing I did like, I like at the end, once I think, what would you describe it as the orgy between the uh, Skeksis and the uh, sloth creatures? Yes, the, they, yeah, they have, to, they have to have an orgy to reform. <laughs> yes, I did like the creatures they turn into, like the glowing tree men. 
Oh, yeah, I like that was, they were a little that was transparent, right? Yeah, I they were yeah, okay. I, I have no idea what they, they they talk, and I don't think it matters. But on an aesthetic level, they are nifty looking. Oh, okay, okay. I like how they looked. I have no idea what they said, but <laughs> see, that's why I brought up. I asked if these were the transparent ones because, of course, the best thing in this movie, the best looking thing in this movie, is something we can see through yeah. somewhat. <laughs> yeah. But no, they were cool. And I like the fact that they got some screen time. Okay, okay. Right I'll be it brief. Yep. So I think those are the two main lines. Oh, God. I have so many so many notes are just me cursing. And I literally wrote at one point, one of my notes is just fuck puppets forever. But I have to, I have to retract that because especially of what we're discussing this Thursday for our Thanksgiving episode. Uh-oh. I guess fuck all these puppets forever. Not oh, Yomi. Not one Yomi. These, one of these stupid turkey creatures is simultaneously wearing three pairs of glasses. And they're like right next to each other. It's not like one's on the head, one's on a, a thing around Rob, the neck. It's trying to be the quirky. Oh, they're God, trying to be quirky. Chamberlain, lay down that scepter. That's the only line I have written down in the, from this movie for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Rob, Rob goes to parties and just starts screaming that at people. Chamberlain, lay down your scepter. Chamberlain, lay down my scepter. Ah! One of my notes is, I am not having a good time. That's, that's true. <laughs> One of my notes is, what the fuck are all these turkey creatures doing? <laughs> Looking yeah. at this movie is horrifying. Oh, yeah. How does... How does <laughs> I wrote, how does this fucking ugly motherfucker know what note to play on his wishbone ocarina? I hated that part because the oh, witch yeah. is like, here's 60 crystals. And he goes, which one do is it going to be? Oh, that's right. I have an ocarina that can play a whole slew of notes, but I know the immediately correct one to play. Like, fuck, fuck this. <laughs> God damn it. So I, I guess the I guess the one thing I did want to, I was tempted to go into it a lot more because one of the things, after watching this movie, I was really like, who thought this was a good idea? Who really thought this was a good idea other than Jim Henson? And I kind of, that's where I got set. It was, you know, what, why did Jim Henson feel this needed to be made? And I think what we said uh, echoes a lot of the sentiment of Jim Henson, you know, being that pioneering puppeteer, puppeteer where he wanted to do a lot of this to show that he could or to, you know, uh, expand the, the art in some, some sense. But while I'm okay with that, I was looking into like the motivation for the design of the characters because that's where I was really like, you know, what would convince someone that this is the way these should look or, you know, how did these come about? And I, this is something that it might have to be like uh, like a whole bonus episode or something like that. But basically, Jim Henson, from multiple sources I've found, interviews with him and stuff like that, he took a lot of inspiration in his own creativity from the story of Watership Down. And the book Watership Down by Richard Adams, I believe, is a great book. I love that book so much. If anybody ever tells you that's a kid book, they are very wrong. That is a very gory, dark book, as is the animated uh, feature from, I think, the 70s. Is, and, that, the bunny? is that the bunny movie? Yeah, yeah, that's... Um, oh, all, okay. They, uh, yeah, Fiverr has his vision that uh, the, the Warren's going to be filled with blood, and so him and his brother Hazel have to like convince the Warren to move, but not everybody wants to move, so they just get their band of stragglers together, and they have to go find a new home. And they encounter like a different Warrens, different types of creatures, and uh, it's, a, it's a very kind of, you know, uh, government type thing. You know, how do, how do different cultures rule their people and stuff like that, and different uh, cultures just in, in things of that nature. It's great. Great story. I love it. 
everything I was reading Jim Henson talking about this, either he pulled an annihilation where he read the book and was like, I didn't like it, so I'm doing my own thing, or he gravely misunderstood the concept of this book. Because there's a, this is the one thing I did want to highlight, because like I said, I could go on forever about this. But there's a character named Kehar, or Kihar. I think it's Kehar pronounced in the movie. I pronounced it Kihar when I read the book. And it's a, it's a bird. The, the rabbits, you know, encounter a bird out in their travels, and the bird is, like, going to eat them, but they, you know, become friends with the bird, and that's kind of like their outsider to their group. Kihar is a very important character because he has a different perspective on the world than the rabbits do. That's his point in the story is that he's a bird. He sees things on a grander scale where rabbits only see what's right in front of them. And there's a lot of great detail in the book about that kind of clash of cultures and perspective. Jim Henson, and I'm quoting, described Kihar from Watership Down as kind of insane bird trying to overcome Tourette's syndrome. This makes no sense. He doesn't have Tourette's or anything like it in the book. He, he disagrees with the rabbits because he sees things differently. And that's the goddamn motif of that character. So, I don't, like Jim Henson, I think he's dead. He's dead, right? He's been dead for a while now. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Like, I, I would have loved to have a debate with him about this. But it, as I dug further into him talking about Watership Down, I was like, oh, my God. Like, he doesn't get it. Like, one of the things, actually, this might be good for uh, the Star Wars podcast one day. Because he says something where he's like, I've always wanted to know, like, how did Fiverr have the, like, the pre, the vision, seeing that all the rabbits in his warren were going to die? And it's like, that's not the fucking point! That is irrelevant to the story. And it makes me think of when J.J., where, as you've told me before, J.J. Abrams said, I watched A New Hope, and the most interesting thing was the line of dialogue about the Clone Wars at the beginning. It's like, shut up. That is such a minute detail, you're missing everything else about this story. So I, I couldn't stand it, and at that point... I was just so, I had washed away my anxiety and fear from the puppets and replaced it with anger and hatred for Jim Henson's understanding of, of Watership Down. And I was just like, I'm done. I'll talk to Zach in two days about this. <laughs> and here we are, folks. Here's the uh, final result of all that frustration. Oh, God, yeah, the podlings are supposed to be, he's like, the podlings were created to be in tune with nature. So we designed them to look like potatoes. And it's like, it's like fucking potatoes. You know how many root vegetables are that you could have picked a better one? It was like, hmm, nature, ground, potatoes in the ground. Okay, there we go. And it's like, really? And they look ugly as hell, the podlings, because they look like fucking potatoes. You could have made them like radishes or something. Made Have, have them not look fucking stupid. like Because they just look like potatoes. <laughs> this movie angers me so much. The, the, I guess this is one, maybe the first instance in Cinemodities where the movie scares the shit out of me, but everything behind the scenes of the movie angers me. <laughs> See, folks, Rob's discovering new new uh, combinations of emotions all the time. Yeah, this was a weird filter to put over my train of thought. This is a very strange movie. <laughs> Fear and anger. What a weird emotional cocktail. Yep, yep. And then, um, and then you know, throw some violence in with uh, sure. Death Kiss, and it's a it's a time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's quite the wrong. All right, Rob. Are we ready to talk about our questions? I think so. I think it's. Uh, I think it's time. What do you want to? Uh, I guess we have cinematis in late night because I'm assuming we have some snacks from Mackenzie as well, right? Yes, we do. Okay. So, uh, cinemati and late night status. Uh, cinemati for the Dark Crystal. I guess I have to do yes because it is so. It's it's so weird in the sense of like why this exists 
why it resonates with people, just how kind of like ugly it is. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be a cinemati. Late night movie, no. Oh, oh God, no. Uh, I my snack is going to tie into this, but I was ready to bite down. I was trying to figure out what molar in my <laughs> mouth has the cyanide capsule. Oh, that's I forgot when we were texting, <laughs> and I said I just bit my tongue off. <laughs> yes, yeah. This this movie is torture. Um, I would imagine uh, cyanide is less painful death in this film. Uh, but yeah, th- this was a mess. Don't please don't watch this. Uh, for death kiss, it's. I don't know if Death Kiss is a cinemati because it's just such blatant exploitation. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I don't know. How is this going to work in the spreadsheet, Zach? Well, how, it's like it's like splits of cells. No, it's The Shining in Room Two Thirty Seven. Whatever the template you use for that. Okay, I guess that would work. But this, I kind of feel like we have a Russian nesting doll of, of oh, movies God. this week. You know, not like it wasn't like a double feature. We really. No, for it us, is it a was a double feature. feature. Yeah, we've we've been setting the stage as you know, watching in the middle of well, something. We're, we're creating a okay. double feature, Rob. If anybody wants dark wants to watch the Dark Crystal, they have to put on Death Kiss afterwards. That's just that's how okay. it goes from now on. Okay. What if when we do these double types of features, specifically in this instance, where you know when one movie causes us to watch another movie, that the spreadsheet's going to have a link in that cell to another spreadsheet. <laughs> we're going to have like a Spreadception, spreadception, yes, sheetception, spreadception, Matryoshka sheet, spread, spread, Matryoshka doll, something like that. We'll work on it. We'll figure (laughs) it out. Uh, Again, Death Kiss. I don't know if it's a cinemati. Unfortunately, a bunch of just regurgitated plot elements Mm. and some goofy ass dialogue from a paraplegic child do not make a cinemati. Unfortunately. Uh, late night movie. I'm going to say yes for Death Kiss because it is a romp. It is uh, it's deliciously over the top at times. It's goofy in all the right places. I uh, I think on all four counts, I'm going to agree with you, Zach. Cinematities, oh. yes. For how much difficulty I had watching it, for how poorly I think it 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 works, uh, for all those same reasons as we've discussed, and and it was just a wild ride. So definitely to cinematities. I thought you were going to say my answer to late night exactly, but I think we're just a little, little separate. My answer to late night is no, no one should ever watch this. As far as Death Kiss, I agree with you completely. It didn't do enough for me to be a cinemodity because I would, I'm sure other movies like this exist. You know, maybe not, what I'm not saying as a death wish knockoff like this is supposed to be so strongly, but you know, just a, a guy goes to get revenge I'm sure this movie has existed ever since the time of Death Wish and will always exist. And like you said, it's rehashed, recycled plot points. Nothing new there. Late night, I I think I have to say yes because I I used it as a late night movie last night and it worked fantastically. Great fun if you got some people you can, you know, uh, laugh at violence with, I guess is the best way to put it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's it's, it's a crowd pleaser if if you have the right audience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So snacks. I guess we should start with our... uh... Fans member giving snack, right? Yeah. So did, did Mackenzie have snacks just yes. for Dark Crystal or did yes, we get any no, for no, she, okay. she, no, she's never I don't think she's ever seen Death Kiss. Okay. She's missing out. That would have been um, a very strange interaction with a fan. Fan requests a movie. We go, hey, you want to give us snacks for that movie? And if you watch this other movie, you can give us snacks for that too. And it's like, wait, I didn't think I was gonna get homework out of this. <laughs> <laughs> you have to at least watch the trailer. 
All right. So this is what her snack choice is. And I quote, my snack choice is more of a restaurant suggestion. So I say we allow the customers to be able to upgrade their complimentary small bump of Coke for an additional upcharge to a small, tasteful leather satchel of crystal meth. However, this meth will be dark purple in color and it will grant them the Skeksis power for a short time. What's the Skeksis power? I guess it's uh, the, the characters, the, the, the bird vultures. Yeah, but what's their power? I don't know, being ugly. Being aesthetically <laughs> undesirable. I think their their point in the movie is they want immortality, but they don't have it. So I don't, I don't understand what no, power. They have, it, they have immortality. They they have some level of immortality. Well, yeah, yeah but I, I took it as they were like, they were able to do something that, you know, kept replenishing them. And if they were able to stop this prophecy, they would actually have true immortality. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think they're pro. I think with that up until the climax of the film, they're kind of like prolonging the inevitable. Okay. Okay, sure. So yes, I think what Mackenzie's trying to say is that we this this crystal meth gives you some form of immortality that's fleeting. I mean, I w- I would bet if you ask people who have done crystal meth before, they would say it makes you feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> so this might I, not I be too far fetched for Cinemonis. <laughs> yeah. So is that was that uh, all of the snacks? That was from it. Mackenzie? That, that, okay, that was so the snack. I find it quite interesting that we did three fans giving selections. Um, Three, of course, four when you count Emily's, but we didn't, unfortunately, didn't get any snacks from Emily for the Aristocats. But I love in this series, two out of the three snack ideas related drugs. <laughs> we had PCP from Scott last week. We got meth from uh, Mackenzie this week. So I, I think we're doing something right, Zach. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think our audience knows what we're up to. I think, I think they finally cracked the code <laughs> after uh, almost two years. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. So I, I do have to say I don't have too many snacks in total. Death Kiss, I was trying to think of some today because since I didn't take notes, I was you know trying to mull it over to because I figured we would talk about this to some extent. Um, the Dark Crystal, though, I was tempted to uh, mirror or repeat my sentiment from Dr. Sleep in that this should not have a place in the restaurant. But I decided not to say it shouldn't have a place. From this film, I want us to make a restaurant-wide policy that Gelflings are never permitted to enter the restaurant. <laughs> Gelflings aren't even permitted to think about the restaurant. <laughs> so I, I want to just straight up, you know, say no Gelflings ever. I'm not saying we need to try and genocide them like the Skex, Skexis did. I mean, I wish the Skexis had succeeded in their genocide of the Gelflings, but... <laughs> Clearly not, and they might be repopulating. Who knows? So no, just just Gelflings. They're out there. They're scary as hell. They cannot come in the restaurant. <laughs> All right, I can get on board with that. Okay. So what did you have for uh, Dark Crystal? Dark Crystal was cyanide. Oh, that's that's okay. <laughs> oh, it's a cyanide film. That's okay. kind of my that's my equivalent. When Rob says like something's not allowed in the restaurant, if I put like if suicide or death is somehow involved <laughs> with the film, that means like it's in the same realm as Rob's. Um, as for Death Kiss, my snack is or uh, food item is actually taken straight from the film. We see Charles Bronson's eat a salad. Like we see him go to town eating like a legit like leafy green salad, yep. and he also has a cup of Earl Grey tea. So that, I think we're. That, is, I, that was what my snack was going to involve. <laughs> see, we have the Charles Bronson's platter. It is a leafy green salad with a cup of Earl Grey tea. That probably wouldn't be bad, but I know Charles Charles Bronson eats like what one piece of greenery and one sip of tea or something like that. Something like that. 
No barbecue sauce anywhere in there? I figured you were going to do that. That's kind of like, I, I figured that's, I was... that's the low hanging fruit. It's like, well, yeah, like, in an ideal world, we have like a barbecue platter and you have to like throw the barbecue sauce on it with both hands. Like, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, maybe you get like a smock or something and that's what you do. Like you get this, like the, the whole sure. table orders the barbecue platter and you got to apply your own sauce to it. I was mulling over stuff with the barbecue for sure. Definitely, you know, the, someone is tied up somewhere and barbecue sauce is getting poured on them. Um, the thing that I was trying to work out in my head was, I, I feel like this came up once, but we were, we were giving a reward to our workers that did really well. You know, oh. like imagine if we had, that doesn't sound like us. Uh, <laughs> that, that's right. It doesn't. So I'm kind of thinking of, you know, we don't have salesmen per se, but you know, we have a lot of weird items on the menu that would need some explanation, I guess, in some sense. And I was trying to think, well, what if we had some type of, you know, uh, who, who did the most sales? Like, who, who was able to sell customers on, like, the really weird, exotic, or esoteric dishes better than everybody else? And the person who did the worst, like, the not the employee of the month, but, like, the employee of the month in the negative sense, like, the one at the bottom of the list, we have an event where we, like, tie that employee up and all the other employees that did better than them get to, like, pelt and whip a barbecue sauce at so it's like it's a reason it's that you know negative incentive um to to get people to sell or work at our restaurant better because otherwise they're gonna have barbecue sauce poured out them and be left for the wolves the wolves are in the restaurant oh oh they're there i mean we didn't invite them we didn't put them there i think they just (laughs) we we annexed some wild land oh just they were just there so it, it works out they're unofficial uh, team members of the Cinemodis restaurant. Yeah, they don't. So you can tell the difference between official and unofficial because the people in the costumes have jizzles. The wolves do not. Oh, that. If you see if you see a wolf with a jizzle, something went wrong, and we probably <laughs> need to find an employee's corpse. <laughs> uh, then we can wipe off the blood afterwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah, oh, boy. Did That's you know that? Like that. Uh, did you know that humans think they rule the world, but it's actually the wolves that own it? Did you know no, that? No, I did not, Rob. You ever see a wolf, follow it. It's going to take you somewhere important. Some people don't realize this about themselves. But uh, you don't have a good smell about you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to me. Is that a dog? It's a coyote. Not going to bite me, right? Oh. Coyotes are blessed creatures. If you ever find yourself alone with a coyote, you don't run away. You follow it. See where he takes you. Oh, dear. All right. I guess I just wanted to give a disclaimer to anybody in our audience that uh, the fact that we kind of crucified a fan's choice. Um, <laughs> I, I did. I, I did tell Mackenzie ahead of time that I had seen the Dark Crystal and did not like it. I think I, we've always said on Cinemonies, if you're watching something for the first, like the whole goal is to watch something for the first time for it to be a novel experience. Um, Rob had not seen it. I had seen it and I knew I did not like it. And she was warned. I said, we didn't, I do not like this movie, but she said, I like it when you two bicker in our suffering. So she knew what she was getting herself into. So it's not us folks. She walked yeah. in and she, she's the sadist here, not us. <laughs> Yeah, Mackenzie, uh, if that was your goal, you used your one quite well. 
Yes. Good selections from our fans this this fan yeah. sure. Yes. Unfortunately, the last one failed the test, but two for two out of three isn't too bad. Yeah, yeah. I do. I still do think Aristocats in there. You know, is the the, well, the then, predecessor. Well, then, then, then it's, two then it's out three. Four. For, it's three for four. So no, no, no. Two for four. Remember, Aristocats started started the trend of having to put Death Wish on. <laughs> All the ultimate test for any fan's choice: the Death Wish test. <laughs> I love it. So I guess um, before we we play things out, um, there's going to be a bonus episode on Thanksgiving. Yep, just Thursday. like last year. So tune into that one. That's going to be a good one. I'm pretty sure we give a breakdown of uh, our next series in that discussion. So I don't think we need to do it here. But I I did want to give a special shout out to anybody who sent us a request and did not get chosen. Because while there's not many of those, like peek behind the curtain, you know, we didn't get like hundreds of emails or anything. We got like thousands. That. We got thousands <laughs> of emails. Don't sell it short, Rob. Wink, wink. <laughs> and so everybody whose choice did not get selected, we still thank you for recommending them. There, There's a spot for it in the spreadsheet now. We're going to have all these fans' choices just ready to go when we need to uh, do a series like this again. Or, hell, you know, I'm thinking maybe one day, because um, Trading Places is on there, maybe one day we'll get to that when I'm off probation. And then we'll kind of have a pseudo-fans' choice in, in some sense. So we'll see. But But seriously, thanks to everyone who reached out. Um, if your choice was picked and we did an episode on it, we hope you liked it. Uh, send all your complaints to cinemodities at cinemodities dot cinemodities dot at, cinemodities, at, something like that. At Charles Bronze, Bronson's dot com. <laughs> Charles, Charles Bronze, Charles Bronsons and Bunce McGavin. <laughs> yeah. God, God bless Bunce McGavin. God bless Bunce McGavin. There was no tape on the door scene in Death Kiss. No, That's what no. Come on, come on, Rob. Every film could have that sort of majesty and just perfection. Oh, my oh, God. But, okay, Rob, so how are we going to end this episode? Um, oh, geez. It's got to be something from Death Kiss, right? I don't, none of the, I guess we didn't mention that. None of the music really stood out to me in Dark Crystal. No. It was like a very, just another thing they shortchanged. So I think from Death Wish, we got some of those great, Death Wish, Death Kiss. Um, we got a, a few instances where Daniel Baldwin will say something and when he's done, It'll switch to Charles Bronson's just like walking around. And there's some pretty in- interesting music going on. So maybe one yeah, of those uh, sure. establishing scenes. Okay. Sure. Yeah, some pretty good atmosphere music in that. Yeah, I, yeah, I dug that. Yeah, that's that's just, this just sounds so weird to me. You know, a cult classic <laughs> film from the 80s gets reviled by us, but a ripoff of a cult <laughs> classic film from the 70s. Gets yep. all the praise. Maybe that's a maybe it's a Dark Crystal needs is Charles Bronson's going into shooting like Muppets. Oh my god! Wouldn't that be great? Going to shoot Muppets. We need a super now, cut. Now that is going to be Happy Time Murders too. Damn! Get, get rid of Melissa McCarthy. Get rid of those puppets. Just make it a Charles Bronson's blowing away puppets because they're so ugly. <laughs> just a, just the Dark Crystal puppets. Ju- yeah, just the Dark. Maybe yeah. maybe that's the prequel to. Uh, Dark Crystal. Maybe it's Charles Bronson's that murders all the uh, little gel- Gelfins or Gelfish or whatever <laughs> we're calling them. <laughs> Zach, when you say things revolver. like that, it sounds good, but then it sits in that if that existed, I would have to watch it. <laughs> 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 I'm not ready for that yet. I don't think I'd be able to look at a Gelfling for at least a year. I don't know, Rob. Seeing them murdered and massacred probably would be right up your alley. Yeah, yeah that might be. That might be cathartic. Better. It'd be oddly cathartic for you. Yeah, you know, it's like when people have phobias, they do that immersion therapy where if like you're afraid of snakes, they'll put a bunch of snakes on you and kind of get you try and realize that it's it's not as bad as you think it is. 
like I'm imagining, you know, this is kind of the reverse of that, where it's not like you're immersed. I wouldn't be immersed in Gelflings, but I would be immersed in like Gelfling murder. And it would be like, see, they have no power over you. If Charles Bron Charles Bronsense is here to protect you, <laughs> there you the go. From the Gelflings. That was, I think Rob and I have to create. I know we talked about in the past doing our anti like Ready Player One, where nostalgia is a cancer. But I think yeah. we have to do it with like all like the Cinemonties films, or we'll have like Dragon Blade, Charles Bronson's Wonder Shows, in. it's <laughs> our version of Ready Player One with all the IPs like we appreciate. Fox Lux is be, in there. That would be so great to like test screen that movie and everybody coming out going, I don't know any of the characters. I think I was supposed to know them. <laughs> Yeah, that, that'd be good. That's it, Rob. The antithetical uh, Ready Player One, where nothing is recognizable <laughs> where it's supposed to be. Half the movie's in Elf Vision. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's one of the things to get the keys. They gotta go through Elf Vision. <laughs> an, an, another reference to a movie that still hasn't been released on Cinematics. Yep, and one that I also haven't seen. <laughs> uh, boy. 